For the rest of us, what's up? How we doing? All right, good, good, good. So um, one of the things that's always interesting about having conversations about what I do is um, getting around to the point where actually I can tell people that it's a real job, right? You know, so, so when you talk about church planning, when you talk about pastoral life, people say, okay, well, what do you do? And I typically, I typically tell people that I work or that I, I, I lead City Light Church. I'm the lead pastor at City Light Church. I typically lead with that first, right? And then, then during the course of the conversation, at some point, it'll come around that I work at Erdic. You know, I work at the Engineering Research and Development Center, too. And they'll say something like, oh, you work, too? Man, this is, that must be really tough. It's like, no, no. I actually work for the church as well. That's, that's work, right? It's not, it's not, that's a job. It's not, it's not a, it's not, it's not something that, you know, you just kind of leisurely do and just kind of jump in. Most people think that the guy that's, you know, lead pastor or pastoring or whatever, he's just kind of jumping in, throwing some sermons together and, you know, preaching. And then that's, that's the, that's the gist of it. So you're like, yeah, I mean, you probably do what, maybe five hours a week or something, you know, and then the rest of the time you're really working at earning. It's like, no, 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 no. This is a job, right? They call it the bivocational pastor life. In fact, many, many church thinkers and thought leaders are beginning to change that language from bivocational meaning that you have two vocations to co-vocational, which is these, these vocations kind of just bleed together, right? They just, you know, in other words, my, my job at Erdic is still me operating in the calling of God. Right? It's not something where I say, oh, I turn God off when I go to earth it, and then I turn him back on when I put my pastor hat on. No, no, no. All of life is where I am serving the Lord and seeking to bring him glory and seeking to expand the kingdom through my, through my feeble efforts that he empowers by his spirit, right? And so, and so now they begin to talk about it from the, from the ideal or from the, the thought of co-vocational, not just simply bivocational, right? But, but the reason I bring that up is because what you notice very early in this text is that Paul is a bivocational missionary, co-vocational missionary. Paul has two particular vocations in which he leverages for the glory of God. Very early on, we see that Paul makes tents. And the other thing about that is that it's seasonal. It's not all, Paul doesn't always make tents as his second job. Sometimes he makes tents and sometimes he goes full, full vocation into ministry. He bounces between them. And we want to talk about his life bouncing between that. And then we want to talk about everything that's happening in his life around him bouncing between that. All right. So that's where we want to go this morning. We want to spend some time talking about these, the, the ideal of vocational life and all that's happening around vocational life. So Paul has just left Athens, and, we, and, and Corey, Corey, I hear preached a wonderful message, and I actually listened to the message, pretty doggone good, um, and, and I'm a little nervous trying to preach behind him, but, but, but he preached Acts 17 talking about Athens, right, and, and, moving, and moving, uh, moving now from Athens over into Corinth. Paul is taking this journey, and the first thing that Luke records is Paul's meeting with Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla are sojourners. They're people moving from one place to the next. It says in verse 1, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a native, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went 
to see them. Now this couple becomes very important partners for Paul. Very important partners in Paul's missional efforts, and their story is worth our time to dig a little deeper into. Because there's a few interesting points in their story that I want to highlight. The first point is this. Aquila and Priscilla's story is historically grounded. We see in verse 2 that, that the author of this book, the author of Acts, Luke, as he so often does, he connects the story to actual historical figures that people can point to and say, oh, okay, yeah, we know that happened. And he also points it to historical moments where people can say, oh, yeah, 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 we definitely know that that happened because we know that guy and we know that moment. You've heard me say this a million times, but one of the evidences of the gospel is the fact that they are that, that the gospel narrative is historically grounded. It's historically grounded in time. And there's evidence and there's historians that point back to these moments in which Luke is pointing to. See, Paul's missionary journey isn't just some mythical narrative. Paul's missionary journey is rooted in history around historical characters and around historical moments. So Claudius was a Roman emperor from the time of AD 41 to AD 54. He was Caesar during that 13-year period. And during the latter part of his reign, he did expel the Jewish people from Rome. This was actually one of several times in which the Jewish people were expelled from Rome. They were expelled from Rome also um, early on, and then they were expelled from Rome maybe a decade or so earlier, maybe a couple of decades earlier than this. And now they're being expelled again. And each one of their times that they're expelled, it was linked very closely to them practicing their faith. For the Roman leaders, the religious activity of Jewish people posed a threat to the life and the, and the, and the order of their empire. And so, and so they would say, hey, knock it off. Right? You guys are getting, you, you got, you're growing and you're in this faith thing that you got going is starting to cause a little bit of uproar. Knock it off or we're going to get you out of here. As a matter of fact, it was not just, sometimes it was just all about Jewish faith. But in this particular time, many historians believe that it was about the conflict between Jewish and Christians, right? In fact, one historian, as the, as the quote above highlights, says this. It says, because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from the city. Crestus is more than likely referring to Christ. And so Christianity seems to have created enough disruption for the, the Roman emperor to say, get out. All of the Jewish people, get out. Which leads to my second interesting point about Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila and Priscilla's story is a sojourner story. It's a story about people moving as strangers. Dare I say refugees almost. In our very polarized and politicized world, it can become all too easy to, to demonize sojourners, to demonize immigrants. But we often find that sojourners and immigrants are, are valuable or serve valuable roles in God's redemptive story. From the, from the children of Israel in Egypt, sojourners in a strange land, all the way to the Son of God in Egypt, Sojourners in a strange land. We see God's 
or we see God's redemptive story using strangers in foreign lands. Some were slaves in those lands. Some were escaping terror in those lands. And yet God saw fit not only to protect them in some cases, but prosper them in others, but most importantly, use them in the story of his redemption. Time and time again, we hear God making an appeal to his people to deal kindly with sojourners and strangers from foreign lands. You hear it in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You hear it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you, and you shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You hear it in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 19. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Joseph and Mary and their newborn infant, whose name just happened to be Jesus Christ, fled to Egypt for a temporary time because they were in their native land and the king sent an edict out that said all the newborn males two years old and older, two years old and under will be murdered because I'm trying to get to this one in particular whose name was Jesus. And so Mary and Joseph did the only thing they knew to do. They took their son and they fled to Egypt, sojourners. And here we see another couple, Priscilla and Aquila, getting kicked out, sojourners, leaving Italy because they've been pushed out and fleeing to Corinth. See, as a result of this, it sometimes, or it just so happens that at the time Claudius is pushing this out, that Paul is also showing up at Corinth. And so it just so happened that these people who share in the same faith and share the same occupation, even in the midst of all of the chaos, God shows that he's moving because they come together in the midst of that. You see that? Life's disruptions are no match for God's decrees. I'm sure when they were being ran out of the city, it didn't necessarily feel that way, right? They were being ran out of their, out of their town and, and having, and having, and having the, to deal with the shuffle that comes with, with being pushed out of a city. I'm sure that it didn't feel that way, but even when God feels distant, stay close. Because he's still working his plans out. He is still doing whatever it is that he has decreed shall be done. In this case, God's plan was for this couple to, 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 be, to be engaged or to be introduced to Paul. And as a result of being introduced to Paul, the advancement of the gospel would be made through this couple, not just in Corinth, but in other cities around Corinth. See, there may come times in your life that you experience moments that appear to be evidence that God has forgotten you. But never forget that God's sovereignty is often behind the most disruptive life moments that you experience. God is in control. Lastly, my third point about Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla's story is a hospitality story. 
Paul and this couple, they held a common occupation, tent making. Together they worked in the tent making business, likely a business of not just tent making, but, but tent repair and other types of things. But more importantly was the reality that they appeared to be of common faith, and for that reason they had common ground and common mission with Paul. And thus he added them to his missionary team. Now notice this couple's heart on display that prompted them to open their lives up to Paul. In verse 3 it says, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He stayed with them. This points to a very important point and a very undermined, uh, undermined point in our culture about Christian transformation. And that's this, the transformed heart is an open heart. Even though the culture trains us, to close the doors of our hearts and, and retreat to the back porch of our life, the gospel calls us to open the doors of our hearts and invite people onto the front porch of our lives. We hear this call in the Old Testament in Isaiah, in Isaiah 58, verse 3 through 7, it says, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all the workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to fit hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such a fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? Listen, to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share the bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and, to, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words, God is saying that, that, that true devotion looks like hospitality. He goes on even in the New Testament through Peter and he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And then he says this, show hospitality to one another. Without grumbling. Oh, man, we got to bring people in our house again. No, no, without grumbling. Rosaria Butterfield in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, says this about the Christian's call to hospitality. Our homes are not our castles. Indeed, they are not even ours. They are God's to be leveraged and used for kingdom building. See, the life that has been transformed by the gospel is a welcoming life. It's a life that is characterized by inviting others into it, either as family or as guests, if we desire to show the love of Jesus to. So this couple is partnering with call and partnering in business, and they share this common faith, but again, they share a common mission, and that mission is not neglected because of their business, and I need you to understand that. The mission is not neglected because of the business that they have. Pay attention to verse 4 where Paul 
gives us a peek into his bivocational life. And he says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Paul's occupation was not a denier of Paul's mandate for God, from God to make disciples. Paul's job as a tent maker didn't overshadow Paul's calling as a disciple maker. Disciples still had to be made even as tents were being made. Saints, all of us have jobs and occupations, and some of you are in the industry of white-collar work, and some of you are in the industry of blue-collar work, and some of you are homemakers, and others of you are homeschoolers, but all of you have been given the call to make disciples. And so the question that you should frequently ask yourself is, how am I leveraging my life? How am I leveraging my job? How am I leveraging my gifting? towards the calling of disciple-making? How am I using what God has blessed me with to advance his kingdom? See, Christ desires to see or to be glorified in everything that he's given us, including our occupations. The question you have to wrestle with is not if he desires to be glorified in my occupation, but how does he desire to be glorified in my occupation? And with all that said, Paul does experience a shift in focus when Silas and Timothy show up. He goes from part-time or bivocational or co-vocational to full-time vocation. In verse 5, it says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Silas and Timothy's arrival at, uh, brings something very important with them. Money. You hear it several times. Paul highlights the, the help that comes from Macedonia throughout the letters that he writes. And so the, and so Paul, and so Paul is receiving missionary support when Timothy and Silas arrive from Macedonia, which allows him to step from co-vocational to a full-time devotion to sharing the word in Corinth. Now, herein lies another opportunity for our occupation to be leveraged for God's kingdom, doesn't it? To advance the kingdom of God by supporting the gospel ministry of others with the resources God is blessing us with on our jobs. The early church is characterized continuously by liberal sharing of their gifts to the advancement of God's mission and the spread of God's kingdom. Even in this small church at City Life. We have several missionary efforts that we support. We got a missionary that's doing international missions on the campus of USM and, and, and engaging high school kids with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We got another missionary that's in Houston, Texas, that is preparing to, preparing to plant in, 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 in one of the harder, hard, harder to reach areas in Houston. We have a, we have, Money that we sow into the Multiply Project, which is a project that is planting churches not just in the states, but it's planting churches internationally. Why? Because that's what God calls us to do with our resources. The resources are here to advance the work of God in our city, but also beyond our city. And so even at a small church like ours, we try to make room to, to sow into missional efforts. See, people glorifying God through the sharing of their resources makes it possible for the mission to be advanced. 
And so that's why we do it. Amen? Amen. Now, notice something. Paul goes from, full, from, from co-vocational work to full-time, I'm dedicated and occupied with the gospel. This is the only thing I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about tents. Silas and Timothy brought a little cheddar with them, and now I can just think about the word, right? But notice something. The problems don't go away. Because sometimes you hear that, right? Sometimes you hear people, well, at least I hear that in pastor life. You hear people that say, oh, man, if I could just do this full time, man, it would be just so much easier. And I could just focus on the word and focus on this. and focus. I'm not buying all that, right? The problems don't go away for Paul. Paul is now dedicated completely to this. And Paul still has issues that he has to deal with in verses 6 through 17. It doesn't make the gospel work easier. He has more time for ministry, but the opposition rises in verses 6 through 17. To borrow and slightly revise a phrase from the great African-American poets, Christopher Wallace and Sean Combe and Mason Betha, known as Notorious B.I.G., P. Diddy and Mace, more ministry, more problems. Verse 6 says, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul doesn't place the burden or the guilt of their rejection on himself. So he has more ministry, he has more problems. But he's not, he's, not a, he's not accepting all of it, right? The rejection, this is not mine. I don't claim that. That's not mine to hold. Paul says that's yours. In fact, Paul's words go back all the way to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, the prophet talks about a watchman who is standing watch. And he says if, the, if, if someone comes to do harm and the watchman sees that harm is coming to the people or, or judgment and danger is coming to the people... And he says nothing. He says, then the blood is on, then the blood is on him. He says, yeah, the people shall perish for their own iniquity, but the blood is also on you for not warning them. But he says, if the prophet warns, if the watchman warns, then even if the people perish because they chose not to listen, the prophet is guiltless. The watchman is guiltless. Paul is saying, listen, this ain't on me. I'm telling you guys. I'm sharing with you the message of the gospel. I'm sharing with you the reality that without Christ, judgment faces us, or we face judgment. That there is no escape from judgment except through the arms of Jesus Christ, through the repentance or through the confession and repentance of our, of, from our sin, and through trust in him, right? And if you reject that, that's on you, that's not on me. Your blood be on your own heads. I have warned you and you have refused. Now I'm going to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what he did in verse 7. It says, and he left there. He went to the house of a man named Titius and Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Now notice something about what's happening in this text. Paul moves quickly from rejection. Okay, you don't want it? All right, cool. That's on you. That's not on me. And he goes to the next group. Now, notice how quickly he moves. The people that end up embracing the gospel are next door. 
That's how quickly he moves. Do you see that? Titus, or or Titius, Justice, he is next door to the synagogue. Crispus is the ruler in the synagogue. So Paul is like, in the synagogue, okay, y'all don't want him. Do you want him? Okay, come on, right? Paul is, Paul is not lingering on rejection. I need you to understand that. Because a lot of us do what? Linger on rejection. Oh, man, I can't believe that dude. Man, cussed me out when I was trying to share about Jesus. Well, I guess I'll share again about Jesus next year sometime. Right? No, Paul is not. It's like, hey, okay, if you don't want to accept it, that's fine. I'm going to the next person. Because it's not on me. See, what you have to understand is that the next embrace of the gospel may be closer to the last rejection of the gospel than you realize. But notice one more thing about, about those who respond to the gospel. Verse 8 says, the second, the second half or the latter half of verse 8 says, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, a quick word about Corinthians. These are the most gutter folks in all of ancient history. Gutter's not Jesus' word, it's mine. I mean, these are ratchet people. The Corinthians are ratchet folks. And what, do you, and what do you mean by that? I mean, what I'm saying is, is that the, even in the temple that they had, they had close to a thousand prostitutes in the temple, sex slaves, that they would perform rituals and worship to their idols. And people from far and wide would come to Corinth to do their dirty work. And pay their money to get into all sorts of dirty things, which is why Corinth had income influx. In ancient times, to say that a person was a Corinthian or acted like a Corinthian meant that they were practicing sexual immorality. In ancient times, to say a person was a Corinthian man or a Corinthian girl meant that they were acting like prostitutes. I need you to hear that because it is yet these very people who seem to be responding to the gospel while the religious are growing more and more callous and defensive to it. See, we should not be surprised when Jesus saved those that we least expect because that's what he does. Oftentimes, the people that we least expect to turn to Christ are the prime candidates, and oftentimes the folks that we feel are a lock never come, precisely because they feel the same way that we do. They think that they're a lock. I'm not certain as to all the reasons that it tends to be this way, but one thing I know is that the call for a Savior is oftentimes most discovered in the awareness of how desperately we need to be saved. And when we don't understand how desperately we need to be saved, it becomes easier to not look for a Savior and to reject the Savior when he comes. See, these people understand their need. 
They're involved in all sorts of sexual immorality. They're involved in all sorts of gutter and ratchet things. And so they aren't surprised when, when someone says, you are in need of a savior. And so their ears were perked. The religious, on the other hand, were mocking him as he was sharing about Jesus. Mocking him when he was sharing about Jesus. And probably mocking the Corinthians when they were coming to Jesus. Saying, oh, those ratchet people, they aren't serious. Saw a little bit of that this week. My only obligatory, oblig, obligatory Kanye reference. And that everybody was, you know, talking about the buzz that came out of Kanye's release. And you had so many people was like, well, I don't know, you know. I mean, maybe. I'm like... I didn't know even when I got saved, right? I mean, I was, <laughs> I was shaky too. You should tell me. It's really shaky. So I mean, all of us, right? All of us were really shaky when we got saved. And yet we had people open arms embracing us saying, come on, man. I'm going to be praying for you, brother, on this journey. I'm going to be praying for you, sister, on this journey. You didn't have people out there like, oh, no, Brian. Well, I hope, I hope this is real, Brian. No, you didn't have that. You have people loving on you. Sometimes we forget how far we've come. Sometimes we forget our desperate need for a Savior. And so like I shared with some folks yesterday, I'm praying for Kanye like I hope y'all praying for me. Somebody's saying, well, I don't know if it's going to last with Kanye. I'm like, I don't know if it's going to last for me. Right? Praying God keeps me. What does, what does, what does Paul get out of this, this moment? Because he's obviously in a place where he's receiving opposition. And there's a, there's a moment where you would get a little, little discouraged as a result of that opposition, even though Paul is moving forward. But what, is, what does God do for Paul? You see it in verses 19 through 11. He says this, and the Lord said to one, Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What does God say to Paul to encourage him? He says a couple of things. He says, number one, nobody will touch you. And reading those words, I'm reminded of God's general reminder in the, in the Gospel of Matthew where he tells us that, listen, I clothe the flowers of the field. I feed the birds of the air. If I watch the, if I watch the flowers, if I watch the birds, then I'm watching you. That's what he's telling Paul. And I'm watching you. Go ahead. Go. Do what I've called you to do. I got your back. But then he tells Paul this. He says, I have many people in this city. I have work for you here, Paul. So go. No force in heaven or hell can deny you if I am for you. So go. The confidence that we take to the mission field is that if we walk with the Lord and trust him, whatever assignment he has for us will come to fruition. Now, we don't know the shelf life. We don't know our shelf life. We don't, we don't know what suffering awaits us on that side of mission. We don't even know the full scale of his plans for us. But what we can rest assured of is that it will be accomplished. Whatever it is that God has assigned you to will be accomplished. Just go. 
And you see it proven in verses 12 through 17, right? Where, where, where we see the, the Jews try to, try to execute their plan against Paul and it, gets, and it gets completely thrown off course. Verse 12, it says, When, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime or Jews, old Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. He drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. See, they were trying to get Paul beat. But what ends up happening is the new guy at the synagogue gets beat. Remember the old guy, he just got saved, so he's gone now. So you got a new guy in the synagogue, and, you know, first order, first order of the day, right? What's on, what's on tap now that I'm the synagogue leader? Beat down. Really bad day, right? That's, but, that, but, that, but that's what happens, right? They're trying to get Paul. They're trying to work to get Paul beaten. And instead... The leader that they go to, it's not any of my business. Now, now, is that necessarily how it always happens? No. But Paul received God's assurances, right? And see, when God, when God says nothing's going to touch you, nothing's going to touch you. See, what, what God ordains, no force can stop. Mobs of angry protesters can try to stop him, but, but they can't stop him. They can go to the king, but remember what the Bible says about the king in Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So they can go to the king, but God has the heart of the king. See, I think two of the things that we just highlighted working through this text together are two of the most significant obstacles that the devil employs when he is waging war on us in our mission to make Jesus known. And it's this, number one, what if they don't receive it? And number two, what's going to happen to me? Those are the two questions we're always asking. Those are the two questions that are paralyzing us from sharing the gospel, right? Those are the two questions that are paralyzing us from stepping outside of ourselves. Is what if they don't receive me? Or what if they don't receive it, the gospel? And number two, what will happen to me? Those are the two things that paralyze us, but they never should. And I don't say that as someone who is never found paralyzed, because I often am. I speak as a fellow sinner that's reminding myself that they never should. The burden to receive is not ours to claim. Remember, we are the watchmen, but the guilt is on those who reject the message. And the burden of what will happen to us is not ours to claim. The Lord will keep us. And should, should we perish, then we will immediately find ourselves in the arms of Christ. It was Paul who told us that, that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. God is saying this morning in, in his word, God is saying this morning to us, release both of those concerns. Go and tell the world about your beautiful Savior and don't look back when you do. 
One last word. When you look at verses 24 through 28, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross, I cannot pronounce that word. Matt, help me out. Achaia. I think that's it, brother. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Here's what's interesting. Aquila and Priscilla show back up in the story. Aquila and Priscilla are the people that pull this very charismatic, eloquent, sharp, smart, bold speaker in Apollos. It's it's Aquila and Priscilla that pull him aside. When they find out that he, 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 man, he's sharp, man. He's sharp. He's a strong, strong preacher. But there's some things that he doesn't quite get. So it's this couple that pulls him aside to share the truth of the gospel with him. I don't know what part he didn't get. Says that, says, obviously it talks about the, the baptism of John, so that could highlight the idea that he wasn't necessarily familiar with the baptism of the Spirit that comes to all those that are, that are found in Jesus Christ. It could be other elements of this that he doesn't quite have yet. Of course, we know the gospel. The gospel is that, that Jesus Christ came in the form of a man born of a virgin. And that he walked the earth in a way that none of us ever could without spot or wrinkle, without sin, though he, though he was tempted. And that on trumped up charges, he was, and, and, and through the betrayal of his own, he was, he was brought up to the, to the governing officials and the masses said, crucify him. And in so saying, crucify him, not really understanding that they were actually a part of God's sovereign plan because God had ordained before the foundations of the world that Christ would die for the world in order that the world might be saved because a perfect sacrifice was required for an imperfect people. And so Christ spilled his blood on that tree that day and was buried in a borrowed tomb. And after three days, rose from the grave and demonstrated that he had power over life and death. And now beckons all of us to come to him, to turn from our sin, to turn from living life the way we want to live life in order that we might receive him as Lord and as Savior, our trusting and repenting of sin. And that when we do so, it is the indwelling spirit that lives in us, the spirit of the living God that is keeping us, the spirit of the living God that has baptized us into a brand new family from every tribe, nation, and tongue. I don't know what part Apollos missed, or whatever part he missed. Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside, and they say, let's talk a little bit. This bright man, this talented man, is pulled aside by a couple that was just kicked out of Italy. In the kingdom, it doesn't matter their status in Italy. 
in the kingdom, they're equipping folks to preach the word of eternal life. See, this is the nature of the gospel. Jesus flattens the social ladders and makes sojourners trainers and equippers and teachers. The gospel makes the world's outsiders God's family. He takes Corinthians, ratchet people. He makes them family, makes them priest, royalty. When I read of Paul's young understudy Timothy, for example, I'm reminded not just of Timothy and all of his wisdom that Paul speaks highly of, and, but I'm reminded of his mother and his grandmother who Paul said, trained you well in the faith. See, sometimes the people that are making the most impact in the faith are the people that you and I may never even hear of. They might not be the ones with the most spectacular stories around us. They might, be, they might not be the ones that have it all together and are skilled in speaking and, and, are, and are sharp and are bright. They may be the ones behind the scenes holding the churches of, of the Lord Jesus Christ together. That's what the gospel is all about, right? That's what the gospel is all about. It's about saving those that we believe that there's no way they can be saved. It's about using those that we believe there's no way they can be used. And so whether you're full-time or whether you're co-vocational in ministry, and all of us are co-vocational in ministry, by the way. So whether you're full-time devoted to it or whether you're co-vocational, Go take this glorious gospel to the world. Make Jesus known. Amen.